Father, we come to you right now because we know that we need your help. Uh, Prayer for us is not a formality, not just something that we do, but it really is a desperate cry for help. Here right before us, God, in our hands, we have the best news that's ever been spoken, the news that's intended to change lives, and not just change lives, but change the world that we live in, Father. And one thing that we know is, uh, though this word has been present, this news has been here, it seems like that in our lives and in the world that we live in, this news hasn't been potent. It hasn't changed things. And so we pray that right now as we get a chance to step back and to read your word, to hear what you have to say, that it would change things, that it would change our hearts, it would change uh, what it is that we expect from you. And as a result of that, we would enjoy closeness in our walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, While I was in school a few years ago, I came across this book called The Pursuit of God. And there's certain times where you read certain books and you find yourself reading certain phrases that forever change your life. And it was this book where I read this one phrase that forever changed my life in the way that I thought about God. And the author of the book says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about anybody is the thoughts that come into their mind as they think about God because it affects everything else that goes on in their life. The reason why this was so impactful for me was because I was a kid who grew up in the church My dad was a pastor. I constantly heard things and knew things about Jesus. So when it came to the topic of Jesus, I kind of viewed myself as an expert. Uh, I already know. I know all the stories. I know what's being said. But then as I read this book and as I studied, I was presented with all of these facts that painted Jesus in a new light. And so what I saw was as my thoughts of Jesus changed and shifted So did my life. And so this phrase hit me hard because at the end of the day, I found out the problem was not that I was an expert on God and I just lived wrong. It was I lived wrong and I lived bad and I lived foul because I didn't know as much about God and Jesus as I thought that I did. That's what makes preaching through a book like Mark in the South, in Atlanta, in a church so tough because a lot of us have grown up in a church a lot of us know all of these stories about Jesus a lot of us feel like we're experts like there's nothing really new that you can tell me I know that he came into the world I know that he healed the sick I know that he healed the lame I know that he told us to repent of our sins I know that I trust him I was baptized And we think that we're good, but as we step back and think of our lives and think of our walk with Jesus, I would wager that most of us would sit back and if we were to describe how things really were, we would step back and say that our lives from time to time are constantly and consistently filled with disappointments. As much as we know that this is God's word, we tend to kind of wake up and we have to force ourselves to to read. It's joyless. 
it really doesn't feel like that there's much life. It really doesn't feel like this provides me with the directions that I want. I trust in God. I know all about Jesus. But as I relate to him, I tend to relate to him from a posture of disappointment. And I see it in two ways. One, in the way that we pray to him, in the things that we say. Think about your prayers. Think about the times where you sit back as one who would say, I know God, and you sit back and you spend your time trying to talk to God. What are the, your prayers filled with? Are they filled with complaints about how hard life is? Are they filled with things that you want to see God change? Are they filled with disappointments and frustrations and anger? Our prayers, the times that we talk to Him, are they filled just with tangible things in our life that we expect Jesus to do for us and to change for us? And what I would say is that if your prayers, like mine so often, are filled with all of those things, you, probably like me, are disappointed because life never really seems to work out in the way that we hoped that it would, regardless of how much that we pray. So those are the things that we pray about. But then I want to take some time and sit back and talk about the things that we don't pray about, the things that we're silent about. Right? We can get very specific when it comes to praying and asking God for things that we tangibly need him to do in our lives. And we could get very generic when we talk about the state of our heart and our soul and our sin. We tend to be silent about those things and very specific about the things that we want him to change. He doesn't really change those things. There's not really an effect on our life and our heart. And so what takes place is this. There's, there's, there's this disappointment and discontentment when it comes to Jesus. Because like any relationship, it's based on expectations. And if you have the wrong expectations going into a relationship you will be disappointed with the relationship that you're in. All across the board, we've seen that to be true with spouses, parents, friends, loved ones. When our expectations don't really match up to what we actually experience, what takes place is there's this discontentment. And unmet expectations, they're fine when life goes well, but what about when life goes really, really bad and you feel like you really, really need help and the person that you expect to help you doesn't help you? It's easy to feel like, why am I in this relationship? It's not worth it. And though many of us in here would say that we trust Jesus with our lives practically, we walk through life and find ourselves in a place like, is it really worth it? Is it really worth me spending all this time, effort, and energy trying to walk with them? 
And if that's you, then I want you to know that the Gospel of Mark was written for you. This book is the shortest gospel because it's not written to a bunch of people that are sitting back reading their Bibles trying to learn about Jesus. Mark is written to a group of Christians in Rome that are ostracized because of the faith that they have in Christ. It's a group of folks that because of the faith that they have in Christ, the way that they live their lives, and the things that they choose not to do, society at large has pushed them to the side and looked at them as folks that hate men. Not unlike the world that we live in today, where those of us that are Christians, there are certain things that we won't do or we won't take part of because of the change that Christ has made in our lives. And then when we speak out about God's standard, about marriage and love and sex, then our world looks at us and views us as if we're, we're bigots and those that hate them. So you have a group of folks here that because of their trust in Jesus, feel like, man, it's not just that I put my trust in the Lord and life goes wrong, but they look at their life and they feel like my life is not going well because I put my trust in Jesus. Is it worth it? And what most scholars believe is that Mark didn't really spend time with Christ, but he spent a bunch of time with Peter, the one disciple who in every gospel it makes a point to mention Peter got to a place where he said, I don't know if following Jesus is worth it, and he denied that he walked with him. So most folks think Mark spent time with him, and as a result of the time and hearing what Christ did in the life of somebody that was tempted to leave from him, that it was as a result of that that Mark wrote this book for people like us to encourage us that we can trust Jesus. So Mark, chapter 1, if you'll start with me. Just really want to walk through this time. And to just give a little disclaimer. If you've grown up in the church, or you think that you're an expert on Christ, come and approach this text as if you're reading things for the very first time. Mark 1, verse 1. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to stop there. That word gospel means good news. So as we come to the gospel, the very first thing that we want to see is that the very first thing that God's going to do is God's going to communicate good news. Listen, news, like you would find in a newspaper, it's not a handbook. It's not meant to tell you step by step what to do. For three and a half months, we've been in the letter of Ephesians. And the aim of that book is saying, as a result of what God has done, this is what you should do. This book is not like that. It's not a handbook. It's not an instruction manual. It's an announcement of what took place. Sometimes we can come to God's word and look for, all right, what do I do? How do I change? What has God called me to do? And we skip past the fact that the Bible is one book. It's one story. It's a message. It's an announcement. 
And if we really pay attention to the announcement, it'll change everything about us. In 1865, Abraham Lincoln made an announcement called the Emancipation Proclamation. Where what he did, he wrote down, he said, hey, all slaves are free. And the powers of the United States are going to do all that they do to enforce this fact that all slaves were free. And it was broadcasted, sent out to all of the U.S., Though it wasn't specifically addressed to anybody, it was relevant for everybody. It changed what life would look like here in the U.S. News, when it's important and it goes out, changes things. So Mark starts off here and says, wait, wait, as you come and sit and approach this, I want you to hear that the answer to your problems is not just instructions. It's not just a handbook. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. The answers to our problems and our dilemma is primarily news, a message, an announcement. So the content of that news says this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the thing about good news. Sometimes good news is good just because it's good news. But sometimes good news is really, really good because it comes off the heels of very, very bad news. So as we talk about this concept of the Bible, sometimes we come and we plop ourselves down here and read about all of what God has done. And it really doesn't strike us as good news because we don't know the bad news. So what I want to do here in the next 10 minutes is give you the Old Testament to help you see the bad news so that as we start to talk about the beginning of the good news, it makes sense. So what Mark wants us to do or wants us to think is this, to start at the beginning, to be reminded of the fact that there was a very, very good God that created the world. When God made this world, God made man, you and I. And the reason why he made us was so that we would relate to him and reflect the best things about his nature into the world. When God made us, he made us with dignity and God made us a family. So much so that when Luke talks about Adam, the first man that's made, do you know the word that he uses in Luke 3? He says Adam was the son of God. And so here's what takes place. Adam as a man was supposed to reflect the best things about God. But instead of reflecting those things, he sinned. He wanted to be like God. He didn't want to reflect God. His goal was to replace God, to unseat him from his throne. That sin, like we talked about last week, in any nation that you live in, if you try to unseat the king from his throne, that's called treason, and the punishment for treason is death. Adam's guilty, very guilty. God comes to approach him on his sin, and the very first thing that he does is he blames God, grumbles against what God did, which is like we talked last week. When you grumble, when we complain, it's not a small thing. Grumbling is us saying, if I had the power, I would unseat you from the throne and place myself there. 
That's why kids grumble against their parents. What they say is, if I was strong enough, there's no way that you'd make me go to bed. I'd make you go to bed. <laughs> and that's why you'll never find a parent in a corner grumbling against their kid because they have the power and authority to make them go to bed. Adam grumbles and tries to take God's place. As a result of that, Adam earns death. This is where sin comes from. He's guilty. So the Bible starts off very, very good, but by the third chapter, it's very, very bad news. And just in case you and I think that Adam messed things up, that if I was him, I wouldn't have done that, the rest of the Old Testament is there to show you, yes, you would have. So look at what goes on. Um, the uh, uh, verses are going to be here on the screen. And I want to show you that the problem is not just guilt and that he did wrong. Now what takes place is the problem for all of us is that we're corrupted. Adam eats a piece of fruit. And the very next sin that we see in Genesis 4 verse 8 is this. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. The first sin is just a piece of fruit. And then a few years later, the next thing that we see is murder. Unless we think that it was one good one that killed one bad one. In the sixth chapter, verse 5, what we see is that God looks down on the earth and everybody only thinks evil all of the time. So what God does is he comes in and he sends this flood, wipes out the whole earth, earth and starts from scratch with this one man by the name of Noah. And in 9 verse 1, what God does is he gives him the same charge that he gave to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then what takes place is two chapters later, an entire earth, instead of spreading over the face of the earth like God said, what they did was they said, hey, God had this plan for us to spread over the face of the earth. But in verse 4 of chapter of, yeah, 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 11, what, what they say is this. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So now you have a group of folks that are continuing to show the problem is not just that somebody made a mistake. The problem is everybody is corrupted and every chance that we get will continue to make the same mistakes that earned Adam death. So what God does is he splits them all up and creates a bunch of nations then what he'll do is he'll choose one. In um, 12 verse 1, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you or and through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what God does is he takes this man and he makes this man into a nation. Exodus 4 comes up 
And the way that God refers to this nation is with these words. Hear this. He talks about Israel as his firstborn son. God has this new son. God gives this new son instructions and rules. This is going to be the way that you're distinct in the world and reflect the best things about who I am into all of the world. And like we talked about last week, what takes place? They disobey God, every last one of them. And not just them, but everybody that comes from that nation. So if you come to the Bible, primarily the Old Testament, as an instruction manual, as I want to look at these guys and I want to have faith in God like all of these guys and walk with them and they're going to be a pattern for how I live my life, you're going to be extremely disappointed and frustrated with what you see. Abraham and Isaac prostitute their wives out. Jacob responds with apathy to the rape of his daughter. Moses fails. Joshua dies. Samson's story is not the story that you heard when you grew up as a kid. Go home and read Samson's story, and you'll sit back and say, this was not a hero. Saul, the king, does a terrible job. David murders and has a bunch of wives. Solomon has 700 wives and 300 side pieces. <laughs> and you go through the rest of the kings, first kings, second kings, on and, and on and on, and you read those books, and all of the kings, except for a few, do more harm than good. So what God does is He sends them off. They're punished. And then God, out of his grace, brings them back into the land and says, hey, settle down here, rebuild your house, my house. And what they do is they spend all of their time making sure their houses and land is pristine. And they completely ne 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 uh, neglect building God's house and trying to do what God says that they called them to do. And all the prophets continually warn them, turn and repent, turn and repent. And they never do. And the Old Testament ends with God saying, I'm going to be silent. And the next thing that you hear from me is a prophet telling you that I'm getting ready to repair all of what took place. And so for 400 years, there's no prophets. So you get to the end of the Old Testament, and if that's all that you have, that's not good news. Because it points to something, and it points to this. And so Mark says, all right, hey, if you've read all of that, and you're down and disappointed, I want you to know this is the beginning of the good news. And the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. That he's the son of God. God has a new son. God has a son that he sent into the world to do what none of his sons have done.
And so the very first thing that it starts out with in verse 2 is this. As it is written. So the good news starts not with what things are like right now, but the good news starts with the fact we're being pointed back to God's word. Here's the good news and here's our hope. The only hope that we have is that we serve a God that keeps his promises. We serve a God whose words are so closely tied to his actions that the reason why he created the world by speaking is so that you and I would never doubt a single word that he said. And it's easy for us to step back and to doubt God's word and to feel like he's not doing what he said that he would do. But Mark starts here and says, no, no, as it is written, look, God said that he was going to do this, and he did. And so what you have is this picture of a prophet pronouncing this news, trying to make sure people are ready for this news. And there's hope, but the hope is in the wilderness. And so we start off and we're reminded of the fact that our circumstances and scenarios don't dictate where our hope is. Our hope is not found in what we see. Our hope is found in God's word. If God speaks, if God says things, then we have hope regardless of where we are. And what an encouragement that is to those of us that live on the southwest side of Atlanta or places like the southwest side of Atlanta. Where we come and we live and we find ourselves in a place with as we look all around, it looks like a wilderness and it looks like things are hopeless and they'll never change. And if we just look to what we have here on the outside, we'll remain hopeless and in despair. But if we look and we trust in God's word and remember that we serve a God that keeps his promises, what takes place is that we can be filled with hope even in the most desolate places. And so what you have as this book starts off is a group of folks leaving the comforts of their home to go out into this place to hear the hope of God, that God is going to do something about our sin. And so the gospel starts off with John saying that God's son is coming. He's going to come here into the world. And then what goes on is this. Jesus gets baptized. And here's why this is so important. John says God's son's going to come here into the world. The problem that you and I face is that as God looks down at our lives and the things that you and I have done, pleasure is not the thing that God feels. It's anger. It's frustration at the fact that regardless of all of the stuff that he's provided for us, we respond with sin and turning our backs from him. There's a corruption that exists inside of us. And if you don't think that's the case for you, I guarantee that your spouse does. I guarantee that your mom and dad does. I guarantee that your roommates do. So much so that in Psalms 52 or 53, verse 2 and 3, it says this about God. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Listen, they have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
This is God's assessment of mankind. Until Jesus. Jesus gets baptized, and in here in verse uh, yeah, yeah, 11, it says this, And a voice came from heaven saying this, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God looks down on all of mankind, and there's nobody that pleases Him. But what Mark's saying is, look, here's the good news. Jesus comes, and from the first time we hear this voice from heaven, God saying He's pleased with one of His sons. And it's not you, it's not me, it's Christ. Then Jesus, in light of experiencing God's pleasure, is sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And what he does is he proves that God's statements of him were true. And we've talked about this in the course of the few weeks. Adam had a plush garden, and he failed when he was tempted by Satan. Israel had a nation of folks, and they were fed, and they, were fa or, or, and they failed. And the Bible goes into great lengths to tell of their struggle in the Gospel of Mark to people that are struggling to wonder if they should trust Jesus. What takes place is it doesn't even give four verses to saying what took place. Jesus was tempted and of course he came out. He's God's son. It's like Mayweather fought last night. And I didn't stay up to watch the fight. Do you know why? Because he was fighting some guy that I never heard about, Berto. And I know that if he steps in a ring with this guy, he's going to come out and he's going to win. There's no big hoopla. There's no big news there's just a picture he came out and he won yet again and so mark to a group of people that are struggling with sin he paints this picture of jesus that look he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with less than everybody else had and he comes out victorious and here's where it becomes good news for us in verse 14 now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. First things first, Jesus didn't just walk around from town to town repeating these 18 words. He preached. This is just Mark saying, this is the content and the gist of what he preached. In the same way that if you went home and a friend said, what did they talk about at church? You would just give them a, a gist. But here's the heart of his message. Christ is saying that all of history is pointing to this one time. Jesus coming into the world is the climax of all of what God tried to do here in the world. The kingdom of God is here. Thus far, the world that we live in, you know it as well as I do, has been ruled by people that don't submit to God. And as a result, our world is broken and it's been fractured and frustrated. And Jesus said, I came into the world to undo all of that. And the prerequisite is this, anybody that wants to be a part of this kingdom, anybody that wants to 
escape the frustration, the bitterness, the heartache, the joylessness that comes from trying to live life on our own terms, they can have it if they would just repent and believe. Two sides of the same coin. Faith is not just a decision that you and I make. Faith is a direction that we set our our lives in. To repent is to turn from our sin. But it's not just to turn from our sin. It's not just to stop. It's to proactively pursue Jesus. And it's proved, it's pictured in the way that he calls the disciples in verses 16 to 20. And so what takes place is Jesus comes to a group of guys and he tells them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so what takes place is they leave everything that's of worth to to them. They leave their professions. They leave their family. And they don't just set these things behind, but they walk with Jesus. Faith in Jesus is tangible. It looks like something. It can be determined and measured from the outside. It's not just a decision that we make in our room. And throughout this gospel, one of the things that Mark is going to help us see is that Following Jesus means helping somebody else to know what it means to follow Jesus. A pastor once said, if you say that you're, follow, if you say that you're following Jesus, but you live a life where you're not trying to help somebody else follow Jesus, then he said, I don't know what you mean by you say you're following Jesus. At the heart, all true Christian growth comes the moment that you and I realize that we weren't made to live for ourselves. The moment that you and I take our lives and give them to the Lord, and as we give our lives to the Lord, what that means is that my life is defined by how I help somebody else know and follow Jesus. It's not just about morality. It's about proactively reflecting the good things about God and who He is so that people come to know Him and trust Him. And the good news is Christ said, I came into the world to do all of this. And the first half of the book is that the good news of Jesus is clearly communicated. And here's what the back half of this first chapter does. Even though it's clearly communicated, the good news of the gospel is often confused because you have people that tend to cling to Jesus, but they do so for all of the wrong reasons. Jesus came into the world with a purpose to save us from sin. And so what takes place, I mean, we're just going to move through the rest of this briefly, is that story after story, what takes place is he goes into the place where God's people come to learn about God and to worship God. And what takes place is Satan has become so comfortable in the way that he rules this world 
that there's a man that's possessed by a, a demon here in God's house. And Jesus comes in as God's son and do, does what Adam didn't do. Adam failed to expel Satan from the garden. Jesus comes in and he shows that he's God's son and that he has all this power and that he purifies God's house and expels this demon. Now he gains all of this fame and the very next thing that we see is this great God who has all of this power that has gained all of this fame. The very next thing that he does is he goes into a house and he heals a little old lady. Aren't you glad that we have a God that doesn't get consumed by the same things that you and I get consumed with? Fame, notoriety, and applause. But this great big God sees this need of this one lady and he heals her. And on and on and on we see Jesus' compassion flowing and flowing and flowing. Mark's going to use the word immediately, time and time again, just to show that this is quick work for Jesus. His life is spent going from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. He's a man that's trying to reflect God in the way that he uses his life. And this is huge, especially for our church and the folks that are here at our church right now. In this, what takes place is that as far as biblical manhood goes, we do a good job of presenting what that looks like in the context of marriage, family, and all of that. But what we fail to do is present what that looks like in the context of somebody that's not married or who doesn't have any kids. Here you see Jesus, a man who came here on this earth with no intention to get married, no intention to have kids, but his life, his singleness is marked by selfless service and compassion, which is a great model for all of us that are freed up, that aren't weighed down, not in a bad sense, marriage is not a weight, but for all of us that have all of these concerns, there's those of us in here that are free to give our lives and to spend them for God's glory. And this is the picture of what Christ does. However, what takes place is that as he heals, as he does all of these great things, people start to have the wrong expectations of Jesus. And they come to him for the things that they need. They see his power, and all that they can think of is, how can his power help me in my life and with what I have to do? And they have these expectations of him that are so far beneath his purpose. And when you come to Jesus for the wrong reasons, you miss out completely on what it is that he really came to do here in this world. And so what I want to do is starting in verse 40. I just want to show you, as Jesus comes and he heals those that are sick, he's not just trying to heal people that are sick 
to show us all that He can heal those that are sick so that we know that we can pray to Him when things go bad and life goes bad and He'll heal us. We have to look at the way that He does things, the way that He heals. It's just serving as a backdrop to say that He came here to do much more. Verse 40 says this, And a leper came to Him, imploring Him, and kneeling said to Him, If you will, you can make me clean. The first thing is this. If you had leprosy in this day, you were literally referred to as the walking dead. These were folks that were put on the outskirts of the town. The law in Leviticus 13, verse 45 um, and 46. I'm just going to read this, and it's going to be here on the screen, so that y'all can see what, what this is like, and it says this. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, unkempt, no haircuts, just rugged. And he shall cover his upper lip. And when he comes into a place, he has to cry out, unclean, unclean. So that everybody that's clean in there knows there's somebody that's unclean in here, get out. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. Listen, he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. As a result of the corruption that this man had, everything stripped from him. If he has a family, gone. Job, gone. Relationships, gone. All of his life, everything that gave him a sense of dignity and humanity was gone as a result of this disease that he had. He's outside of the camp. Jesus right now is from town to town preaching all of this good news. This man has this death sentence. He's going to walk through life and the only thing that he has to look forward to is the day of his death. He's corrupted on the inside. This is a picture of all of us corrupted on the inside. Though we live and we walk dead on the inside, there's nothing inside of us that would, would be drawn to God. And then as he approaches this Jesus, that he's seen his power in him do all of this good work, the very first thing that he says to him is this. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice, the very first thing that he said as he looked to him was not, if you can, I know that you can. But as he looked at his disease, he doubted that Jesus could do something about what was wrong with him. Most folks in this day said, or they would say, Healing somebody who has this disease is just as unlikely as somebody that's dead being raised to a new life. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, when he talked about his conversion, said this. The fact that God would spare him of his sin. It was not the pardon that I wondered at so much. The wonder was that it should come to me. 
I marveled that God should be able to pardon such sins as mine, such crimes so numerous and so black, and that after such an accusing conscience, he should have power to still every wave within my spirit and make my soul like the surface of a river, undisturbed, quiet, and at ease. Spurgeon said, as he looked at the way that God dealt with sin, it's not that he doubted Jesus could save folks from their sin. What he doubted is that Jesus could save me from my sin. It's likely if it takes place to somebody else. It's impossible as I think about what's going on in my life. And in verse 42, listen, it's not just that Jesus healed him. Look at how he healed him. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. If you know it takes place here in this day and age, if somebody was unclean and you touched the person that was unclean, now what took place is that the fact that you touched them made you unclean. Somebody that was leprous, if they walked into a house, the fact that they walked into that house contaminated the house and they were all unclean. This past weekend, um, or this past week, I went on a trip, spoke to a group of pastors. Now, as I think of Taco Bell, Clean is not the word that I would use to describe that food. Very unclean. I've abstained for years now. Well, I was with a group of guys that were part of this church who shall remain nameless, and it was late in one night, and because they were in my car, they convinced me to go, and we go, and I eat it, and I come home, and I have to confess to my wife, and I said, Chandra, I'm unclean, unclean, unclean. Being close to somebody that's unclean would make you unclean. Jesus, the person who raised a man from the dead by words, could have said, brother, stand off at a distance, be healed. But instead he comes and he touches them to show us all that we serve a God that is not afraid of our dirt regardless of how dirty we may be. And he puts out his hand and he touches him. And one touch, listen, it doesn't contaminate Jesus, but it cleanses this man. And he's clean. He's healed because of what Jesus came to do. And then what he does is he goes to this man and he tells him, hey, listen, go out. The only act of obedience that I need you to do is don't tell anybody. Throughout this chapter, constantly, Jesus is quieting people that are revealing who he is. Because at the end of the day, he knows that if somebody else says what I'm like, there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to have all these expectations of me that are not true. So be quiet. Let me explain who I am so that people have the right picture. So what he does is he tells this man, leave, don't say anything. What does the man do? He says something. 
the funny thing is throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus talks to demons. They obey what he says. Jesus talks to nature. They obey what he says. Jesus talks to us, and we don't do what he says. I'm glad that we've changed so much since this one text here. But look here. I really want you to see this at the end of the story. Not only does Jesus touch this man and make him clean. Not only does he do the impossible. But look at how it ends off in verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, listen, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was where? Out in desolate places, and people came to him from every quarter. The leper, because of his sickness and disease, should have been on the outside. Jesus should have been free to be in the city, to enjoy the comforts of what life had there. He goes there, heals this man, and because of this man's disobedience, now Jesus is forced on the outside of the camp, and this man is on the inside. This is the beauty of the gospel, is that this Son of God that has earned God's pleasure and God's right comes in, heals us, and the way that he heals us is he trades places with us. You and I should have our dignity robbed of us because of our sin, family, loved ones, all these consequences, hell. We earned that. This is why Mark starts off and says, this is good news. God has a son that did what he should do, and this son is more than willing to trade places with you. If only... If only you would repent and believe. If you would turn from your sins and follow this great God who has the authority to command demons, nature, sickness, hard times. We can trust Jesus. He'll never disappoint us if we come to him for the right reasons. If you come to Jesus for the wrong reasons, if you come to Jesus for a better life now, then what's going to take place is you will be severely disappointed. Not because your expectations were too high, but because they were too low. Jesus came, the good news of the gospel. The reason why the gospel is good news is because our deepest need one that's often overshadowed by all of the needs that are right in front of our face, our deepest need, our sin and our standing in the sight of God. It's been dealt with by Jesus, and the offer is free to all of us. So if you're here and you feel discontent with what God has done in your life, it's likely that you're looking to what goes on in your life just here and now, and you're not thinking of the amazing things that he's done for us in the fact that he traded places with us and our sin is not going to be held against us. This is good news. And if you're here and you say, I've never heard that or I don't live like that's true, 
The best news is that this good news is for you. It's for all of us. There's an open invitation for us to turn from our sins and to say, Jesus, I want to spend the rest of my life following you, letting you set the agenda for my life. And the beauty of it is that when we do that, this good news has the ability to change every aspect of our life. Everything. This is why we gather as a church week in and week out. This is the only reason why we're here in the same room. I really want you to get that. The only reason we're here in this room is to be reminded and celebrate and rejoice in the fact that Jesus has traded places with us. And when the gospel lies at the heart of all that we do, do you know the one thing that it does do? It gives perspective to all of our problems. It reminds us that though they may be, though those things might be right in front of us right now, those, that's not the most important thing that goes on in this world. This Bible, this book, this story is meant to zero us in on the fact that the good news of Jesus Christ is that God finally has a son that he's pleased with. And this son that he's pleased with is willing to trade places with every son or daughter that has earned God's displeasure. So as we go through this book, as we spend the next eight weeks in these eight chapters, one thing that we constantly want to drill down and help you see is this. You can trust Jesus. You can trust him. There's nothing that he can't do. There's no one that's a competitor. He breezes through the opposition and anybody that's looking for a rescuer or a savior can place their hope in him free of charge. And if that news is what you really be, be, uh, believe and lies at the core of who you are, the Bible's going to give and talk through instructions about marriage but it gives those instructions to people who have this good news at their core. If you don't have this good news at the core, all the instructions mean nothing. And they're only going to be incredibly frustrating to you because you don't have the thing that lies at the heart, the engine and the fuel. But if you have that good news, if you come to Jesus for the right reasons, you'll never be disappointed because even in the midst of wilderness and the most desolate places, we can be reminded that there's hope. And the hope does not come from what we see. The hope does not come from what our life looks like. The hope comes from the fact that we have a God that keeps his word. And he's kept his word through his son, who's willing to trade places with us all. Let's pray. Father, once again, we just want to be reminded of this truth, Father. We don't want to be so 
arrogant as to think that news has to specifically have our name attached to it if it's going to be relevant for us, Father. This is good news that's available to us all. And so I would pray that those right now that have been trying to bear the load of their sin and their guilt all by themselves, that they would be reminded, that they would hear that they don't have to do that, that your son did that. Father, help us to put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And as we go to him and expect the right things, I pray that our lives would be filled with joy, that they would be marked by gratitude and thanksgiving and We ask that you would do this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.